Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I hope you are having a fine afternoon, fine evening, fine morning. I love you all. I don't know who needs to hear that today. Um, y'all are important to me. You've helped me through a lot, and um, I, I am thankful to have been able to join you for a lot. Uh, I hope everyone is having a safe day and that you're with people that you love. Now, I may may make... Hmm, I hit one too, one too many of those. Uh, I may make uh, additional very light, very light commentary uh, later on in the stream. But today, not right now. Uh, right now, um, <clears throat> I want to be a place where y'all can show up. Uh, y'all can show up and y'all can be at peace. So welcome. Uh, we're going to be reading chapters 13, 14, 15 of The Hunger Games. So I can't guarantee you all the peace in the world because, of course, it is, well, it's dramatic up in there, isn't it? There's a lot of drama up in uh, up in chapters 11, uh, 10, 11, 12 uh, as we got kicked off with part two. But now we are deep, deep into The Hunger Games themselves. Uh, we had some great discussion, um, not last week, of course, but the week prior, regarding the structuring of this book. You know, it's it's atypical nowadays that we would see something hold off so long before getting into the games themselves, right? If this game is about the Hunger Games, why wait for literally a, a third of the book before you're into the uh before you're into the actual games themselves? Well, we have to know what we're fighting for. We got to know what we care about. We got to know what's there, what's back home. Where are we coming from? Where do we go? Where did we come from? Got Nigel. <laughs> Sander, uh, let's see, Gwendog, Gems, Dahlia, everybody's got sleep on the brain right now. And I say unto you, do it. Do it. Fall asleep. I if if you know, if if sleep is like the the thing, even if even if for, for you folks who are only here to fall asleep. I welcome you. I hope you have a fantastic evening. I hope you sleep well, sleep tight. And uh yeah, we will we will talk again later. No need to worry about it. Um Yeah. <laughs> welcome to the little corner, says Noxora. Um yeah, I'm grateful to have you here. Noxora, uh Tenacia, Gems, Hearthook, Gwendog, Dahlia, Sander. Uh let's see, I see Gee uh <laughs> I see Gibo and Curdy. No, I see Gertie and Kibo over on Discord. I love y'all. And yeah, 20 months indeed. Uh 20 months, that's a big one, Sander. The one of the biggest, right? One of the top top 2, I think, if not top number 1. I think top number 1, right? 20 months? I I'm pretty sure that's number 1 up there. But uh yep, y'all, I hope you're having a good one. Um Let's talk a little bit about last week, shall we? A little bit about, uh, and I'm going to keep saying last week, even though it's a big goof em up, we didn't do last week because uh, our blue boy had to go to the vet. Uh, it turns out he's doing well. Um, he's still in, he's still old. He's still an old cat. Um, and he's still moving slower than he was, you know, six months ago. But uh, as far as his, like, his cough goes... Turns out that's probably fine. Um, he, we, we made some adjustments and uh, let's see, we got a, a little air purifier because frankly it's going to help 
everyone except Cass and probably Cass as well. Um, I get pretty bad allergies. Uh, one of our other cats has some allergies and then Blue, like they think maybe it was allergy, uh, like um, ambient allergen related. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, we, we got that and he is really, he seems to be doing quite well. We need an alliteration stream. <laughs> oh boy. I can certainly concoct some contraption that might I can't find it. <laughs> can't find it. Oop. No, maybe I'll try more again later. Uh, JCA, welcome. And uh, subscription for 18 months. That's another long time. That's another good long time. JCA, welcome back. Uh, but yeah, folks, I'm going to keep saying last week, even though it wasn't last week, but y'all know what I mean. Uh, but Blue is doing well. The uh, All signs indicate Blue's doing just fine uh, for, for the old boy that he is. Um we are going to read uh, chapters 13, 14, and 15. We're in the games, and we have more questions about Peter Malark than we ever have before. Um, uh, Katniss is in, well, fairly bad shape. Uh, and we'll go over the why exactly uh, once we jump back into it. But let's let's talk a bit of review first, shall we? Uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 10, we're first going into the games. Um, you know, we, we have this moment where Katniss and Peeta kind of meet eyes. Um, and Katniss sort of only half commits to, uh, to Haymitch's first direction, which was just get away as quickly as possible. Put as much distance as you can between you and the other tributes. That was directive number one. She only half listens. She gets a backpack with a few little supplies in it, but no bow. She doesn't see what happens to Peta. They... I mean, they... They are... They're deep in the games now. Um, and uh, after this... Uh, we spend a lot of time alone with Katniss. Um, Katniss does some thinking about, uh, you know, what things are like back home, potentially, how she can strategize here. Um, and she really spends some time considering, like, how am I going to present myself here? When I take a hit, I need to, I need to really, I need to really display that I'm still kind of in charge. But it doesn't take long for the second direction from Haymitch, find water to really rear its ugly head. She tries, but she saw that lake very early on near the cornucopia. She can't get back to it because, of course, it'll be swarming with uh, the strongest tributes now. But she can't find any more water. She's hunting for it, she's hunting for it. She hunts for days, and unfortunately, she can't find anything. <clears throat> oh boy, I sound like I'm getting all choked up. <laughs> She can't find find any water. Um, she can't. Uh, she sleeps uh, tied up in a tree, and uh, she she sees some of the career tributes come by and uh, kill another tribute. Um, but uh, she cannot find any water. She hopes that Hamish is going to send her some water, but when he doesn't, she sort of goes through this period of wondering, like, has he betrayed her? But no, the only real reason would be if she's already close. And so she keeps going a little bit further, and she finds water. Now, we find her here after uh, this encounter with the Tributes, during which uh, she hears a very unexpected voice traveling around with the Career Tributes. It's Peta. 
PETA is hanging out with the career tributes. He seems to be injured, but he's traveling with them, and they seem to think that they can rely on him as uh, some sort of way to get at Katniss herself. Um, uh, uh, Katniss is able to slip away, um, barely, and finally... um, she re-encounters this pack. Uh, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, finally, she uh, she finds this water, and um, she has a chance to rest a little bit here near the bank. Uh, and that is roughly where we're at, except that when she awakens, there is, quote, a wall of fire descending, end quote. And folks, with that little bit of review, I think it's time we embark on today's adventure. Chapter 13. My first impulse is to scramble from the tree, but I'm belted in. Somehow my fumbling fingers release the buckle and I fall to the ground in a heap, still snarled in my sleeping bag. There's no time for any sort of packing. Fortunately, my backpack and water bottle are already in the bag. I shove in the belt, hoist the bag over my shoulder, and flee. The world is transformed to flame and smoke. Burning branches crack from trees and fall in showers of sparks at my feet. All I can do is follow the others, the rabbits and the deer, and I even spot a wild dog pack shooting through the woods. I trust their sense of direction because their instincts are sharper than mine. But they're much faster, flying through the underbrush so gracefully as my boots catch on roots and fallen tree limbs. There's no way I can keep pace with them. The heat is horrible, but worse than the heat is the smoke, which threatens to suffocate me at any moment. I pull the top of my shirt up over my nose, grateful to find it soaked in sweat, and it offers a thin veil of protection. As I run, choking, my bag banging against my back, my face cut with branches that materialize from the gray haze without warning, because I know I'm supposed to run. This was no tribute's campfire gone out of control, no accidental occurrence. The flames that bear down on me have an unnatural height, a uniformity that marks them as human-made, machine-made, Game-maker made. Things have been too quiet today. No deaths, perhaps no fights at all. The audience in the capital will be getting bored, claiming that these games are verging on dullness. This is the one thing the games must not do. It's not hard to follow the game-maker's motivation. There's the career pack, and then there are the rest of us, probably spread far and thin across the arena. This fire is designed to flush us out, to drive us together. It may not be the most original device I've seen, but it's very, very effective. I hurtle over a burning log. Not high enough. The tail end of my jacket catches and fire, and I have to stop to rip it from my body and stamp out the flames. But I don't dare leave the jacket, scorched and smoldering as it is, as I take risk of shoving it in my sleeping bag, hoping that the lack of air will quell what I haven't extinguished. This is all I have, what I carry on my back, and it's little enough to survive with. 
In a matter of minutes, my throat and nose are burning. The coughing begins soon after. My lungs feel like they're going to actually be cooked. Discomfort turns to distress until each breath sends a searing pain through my chest. I manage to take cover under a stone outcropping just as the vomiting begins, and I lose my meager supper and whatever water has remained in my stomach. Crouching on my hands and knees, I retch until there's nothing left to come up. I know I need to keep moving, but I'm trembling and lightheaded now, gasping for air. I allow myself about a spoonful of water to rinse my mouth and then spit out and take a few swallows from the bottle. You get one minute, I tell myself. One minute to rest. I take the time to reorder my supplies, wad up the sleeping bag, and messily stuff everything into the backpack. My minute's up. I know it's time to move on, but the smoke has clouded my thoughts. The swift-footed animals that were my compass have left me behind. I know I haven't been in this part of the woods before. There were no sizable rocks like the ones I'm sheltered against in my earlier travels. Where are the game makers driving me? Back to the lake? To a whole new terrain filled with new dangers? I had just found a few hours' peace at the pond when this attack began. Would there be any way I could travel parallel to the fire and work my way back there, to a source of water at least? The wall of fire must have an end and won't burn indefinitely. Not because the game makers couldn't keep it fueled, but because, again, that would invite accusations of boredom from the audience. If I could get back behind the fire line, I could avoid meeting up with the careers. I've just decided to try and loop back around again. Although it will require miles of travel from the Inferno and then a very circuitous route back when the first fireball blasts into the rock about two feet from my head. I spring out from under my ledge, energized by renewed fear. The game has taken a twist. The fire was just to get us moving. Now the audience will get to see some real fun. When I hear the next hiss, I flatten out on the ground, not taking the time to look. The fireball hits a tree to my left, engulfing it in flames. To remain still is death. I'm barely on my feet before the third ball hits the ground where I was laying, sending a pillar of fire up behind me. Time loses meaning now as I frantically try to dodge the attacks. I can't see where they're being launched from, but it's not a hovercraft. The angles aren't extreme enough. Probably this whole segment of the woods has been armed with precision launchers that are concealed in trees or rocks. Somewhere, in a cool and spotless room, a game maker sits at a set of controls. Fingers on the triggers that could end my life in a second. All that's needed is a direct hit. Whatever vague plan I had been conceiving regarding returning to my pond is wiped from my mind as I zigzag and dive and leap to avoid the fireballs. Each one is only the size of an apple, but packs tremendous power on contact. Every sense I have goes into overdrive as the need to survive takes over. There's no time to judge if a move is the correct one. When there's a hiss, I act or die. Something keeps me moving forward, though. A lifetime of watching the Hunger Games lets me know that certain areas of the arena are rigged for certain attacks, and that if I can just get away from this section, I might be able to move out of reach of the launchers. I might also fall straight into a pit of vipers, but I can't worry about that right now. How long I scramble along, dodging the fireballs, I can't say. But the attacks finally begin to abate. Which is good, because I'm retching again. This time it's an acidic substance that scalds my throat and makes it way to my nose as well. I'm forced to stop as my body convulses, trying desperately to rid itself of the poisons I've been sucking in during the attack. I wait for the next hiss. The signal to bolt. 
it doesn't come. The force of the retching has squeezed tears out of my stinging eyes. My clothes are drenched in sweat. Somehow, with the smoke and vomit, I pick up the scent of singed hair. My hand fumbles to my braid and finds a fireball has seared off at least six inches of it. Strands of blackened hair crumble in my fingers. I stare at them, fascinated by the transformation when the hissing registers. My muscles react, only not fast enough this time. The fireball crashes into the ground at my side, but not before it skids across my right calf. Seeing my pants lag on fire sends me over the edge. I twist and scuttle backward on my hands and feet, shrieking, trying to remove myself from the horror. When I finally regain enough sense, I roll the leg back and forth on the ground, which stifles the worst of it. But then, without thinking, I rip away the remaining fabric with my bare hands. I sit on the ground, a few yards from the blaze set off by the fireball. My calf is screaming, my hands covered in red welts. I'm shaking too hard to move. If the game makers wanted to finish me off, now's the time. I hear Sinna's voice, carrying images of rich fabric and sparkling gems. Cadmus, the girl who was on fire. What a good laugh the game makers must be having over that one. Perhaps Sinna's beautiful costumes have even brought on this particular torture for me. I know he couldn't have foreseen this. It must be hurting for me, because in fact I believe he cares about me. But all in all, maybe showing up stark naked on that chariot would have been safer for me. The attack is now over. The game makers don't want me dead. Not yet, anyway. Everyone knows they could destroy us all within seconds of the opening gong. The real sport of the Hunger Games is watching the tributes kill one another. Every so often they do kill a tribute just to remind the players they can. But mostly they manipulate us into confronting one another face to face. Which means, if I'm no longer being fired at, there's at least one other tribute close at hand. I would drag myself into a tree and take cover if I could, but the smoke is still thick enough to kill me. I make myself stand and begin to limp away from the wall of flames that lights up the sky. It doesn't seem to be pursuing me any longer, except with its stinking black clouds. Another light, daylight, begins to softly emerge. Swirls of smoke catch sunbeams. My visibility is poor. I can see maybe fifteen yards in any direction. The tribute could easily be concealed from me here. I should draw my knife as a precaution, but I doubt my ability to hold it for long. The pain in my hands can in no way compete with that in my calf. I hate burns. I've always hated them. Even a small one gotten from pulling a bread pan out of the oven. It's the worst kind of pain to me, but I've never experienced anything like this. I'm so weary I don't even notice I'm in a pool until I'm ankle deep. It's spring-fed, bubbling up out of a crevice in some rocks, and blissfully cool. I plunge my hands into the shallow water and feel instant relief. Isn't that what my mother always says? The first treatment for burn is cold water, that it draws out the heat? But she means minor burns. Probably she'd recommend it for my hands, but what of my calf? 
Although I've not yet had the courage to examine it, I'm guessing it's an injury on a whole different class. I lie on my stomach at the edge of the pool for a while, dangling my hands in the water, examining the little flames on my fingernails that are beginning to chip off. Good. I've had enough fire for a lifetime. I bathe the blood and ash from my face. I try to recall all I know about burns. They're common injuries in the seam where we cook and heat our homes with coal. Then there are the mine accidents. A family once brought an unconscious young man pleading with my mother to help him. The district doctor, who's responsible for treating the miners, had written him off, told the family to take him home to die, but they wouldn't accept this. He lay on our kitchen table, senseless to the world. I got a glimpse of the wound on his thigh, gaping, charred flesh, burning clear through down to the bone, before I ran from the house. I went to the woods and hunted the entire day, haunted by the gruesome leg, memories of my father's death. What's funny was, Prim, who's scared of her own shadow, stayed and helped. My mother says healers are born, not made. They did their best, but the man died, just like the doctor said he would. My leg is in need of attention, but I still can't look at it. What if it's as bad as the man's and I can see my bone? Then I remember my mother saying that if a burn is severe, the victim might not even feel the pain because the nerves would have been destroyed. Encouraged by this, I sit up and swing my leg in front of me. I almost faint at the sight of my calf. The flesh is a brilliant red covered with blisters. I force myself to take deep, slow breaths, feeling quite certain that the cameras are close on my face. I can't show weakness at this injury, not if I want help. Pity does not get you aid. Admiration at your refusal to give in does. I cut the remains of the pant leg off at the knee and examine the injury more closely. The burned area is about the size of my hand. None of the skin is blackened. I think it's not too bad to soak. Gingerly, I stretch out my leg into the pool, propping the heel of my boot on a rock so the leather doesn't get too sodden, and sigh, because this does offer some relief. I know there are herbs, if I can find them, that would speed the healing, but I can't quite call them to mind. Water and time will probably be all I have to work with. Should I be moving on? The smoke is slowly clearing away, but still too heavy to be healthy. If I do continue away from the fire, won't I be walking straight into the weapons of the careers? Besides, every time I lift my leg from the water, the pain rebounds so intensely I have to slide it back in. My hands are slightly less demanding. They can handle small breaks from the pool. So I slowly put my gear back in order. First, I fill my water bottle with the pool water, treat it, and then, when enough time has passed, begin to rehydrate my body. After a time, I force myself to nibble on a cracker, which helps to settle my stomach. I roll up my sleeping bag. Except for a few black marks, it's relatively unscathed. My jacket is another matter entirely. Stinking and scorched, at least a foot of the back is beyond repair. I cut off the damaged area, leaving me with a garment that comes just to the bottom of my ribs but the hood's intact, and it's far better than nothing. Despite the pain, drowsiness begins to take over. I'd take to a tree and try to rest, except I'd be too easy to spot. Besides, 
Abandoning my pool seems impossible. I neatly arrange my supplies, even settle my pack on my shoulders, but I can't seem to leave. I spot some water plants with edible roots and make a small meal with my last piece of rabbit. Sip water. Watch the sun make its slow arc across the sky. Where would I go anyway that's any safer than here? I lean back on my pack, overcome by drowsiness. If the careers want me, let them find me, I think, before drifting into a stupor. Let them find me. And find me, they do. It's lucky I'm ready to move on, because when I hear the feet, I have less than a minute head start. Evening has begun to fall. The moment I'm awake, I'm up and running, splashing across the pool, flying into the underbrush. My leg slows me down, but I sense my pursuers are not as speedy as they were before the fire, either. I hear their coughs, their raspy voices calling to one another. Still, they're closing in, just like a pack of wild dogs. And so I do what I've done my whole life in such circumstances. I pick a high tree and begin to climb. If running hurt, climbing is agonizing, because it requires not only exertion, but direct contact of my hands on the tree bark. I'm fast, though, and by the time they've reached the base of the trunk, I'm twenty feet up. For a moment, we stop and survey one another. I hope they can't hear the pounding of my heart. This could be it, I think. What chance do I have against all of them? All six are here, the five careers and Peta. My only consolation is they're pretty beat up, too. Even so, look at their weapons. Look at their faces, grinning and snarling at me, a sure kill above them. It seems pretty hopeless. But then something else registers. They're bigger and stronger than I am, but no doubt they're also heavier. There's a reason it's me and not Gale who ventures up to pluck the highest fruit or rob the most remote bird nests. I must weigh at least 50 or 60 pounds less than the smallest career. Now I smile. How's everything with you? I call down cheerfully. This takes them aback, but I know the crowd will love it. Well enough, says the boy from District 2. Yourself? It's been a bit warm for my taste. I say. I can almost hear the laughter from the capital. The air's better up here. Why don't you come on up? Think I will, says the same boy. Here, take this, Kato, says the girl from District 1, and she offers the silver bow and sheath of arrows. My bow. My arrows. Just the sight of them makes me so angry I want to scream. At myself. At the traitor Peta for distracting me from having them. I try to make eye contact with him now, but he seems to be intentionally avoiding my gaze as he polishes his knife with the edge of his shirt. No, says Cato, pushing away the bow. I'll do better with my sword. I can see the weapon, a short, heavy blade at his belt. I give Cato time to hoist himself into the tree before I begin to climb again. Gale says I remind him of a squirrel, the way I can scurry up even the slenderest limb. Part of it is my weight, but part of it is practice. You have to know where to place your hands and feet. I'm another thirty feet in the air when I hear the crack and look down to see Cato flailing as he and a branch go down. 
He hits the ground hard, and I'm hoping he possibly broke his neck when he gets back to his feet, swearing like a fiend. The girl with the arrows, Glimmer, I hear someone call her. Ugh. The names the District 1 people give their children are ridiculous. Anyway, Glimmer scales the tree until the branches begin to crack under her feet, and then has the good sense to stop. I'm at least 80 feet high now. She tries to shoot me, and it's immediately evident she's incompetent with a bow. One of the arrows gets lodged in a tree near me, though, and I'm able to seize it. I wave it teasingly above her head, as if this was the sole purpose of retrieving it, when I actually mean to use it if I ever get the chance. I could kill them, every one of them, if those silver weapons were in my hands. The careers regroup on the ground, and I can hear them furiously growling amongst themselves. I've made them look foolish, but twilight is arriving, and their window of attack on me is closing. Finally, I hear Peter say harshly, Oh, let her stay up there. It's not like she's going anywhere. We'll deal with her in the morning. Well, he's right about one thing. I'm going nowhere. All the relief from the pool water is gone, leaving me to feel the full potency of the burns. I scoot down to a fork in the tree and clumsily prepare for bed. Put on my jacket, lay out my sleeping bag, belt myself in and try to keep from moaning. The heat of the bag is too much for my leg. I cut a slash open in the fabric and hang my calf out into the open air. I drizzle the water on my wounds, my hand. All my bravado is gone. I'm weak from the pain and hunger, but can't bring myself to eat. Even if I can last the night, what will the morning bring? I stare into the foliage, trying to will myself to rest, but the burns forbid it. Birds are settling in for the night, singing lullabies to their young. Night creatures emerge. An owl hoots. The faint scent of a skunk cuts through the smoke. The eyes of some animal peer at me from a neighboring tree. A possum, maybe, catching the firelight from the career's torches. Suddenly I'm up on one elbow. Those are no possum's eyes. I know their glassy reflection too well. In fact, those are not animal eyes at all. In the last dim rays of light, I make her out, watching me silently from between the branches. Rue. How long has she been here? The whole time, probably, still and unobserved as the action unfolded beneath her. Perhaps she headed up her tree shortly before I did, hearing the pack was so close. For a while, we hold each other's gaze. Then, without even rustling a leaf, her little hand slides into the open, and she points to something above my head. What do we think of this now? Not only is there another tribute nearby, but it's another tribute who seems to have some information for Katniss. What sort of information is it? 
pointing at something above Katniss's head. I I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I'm really thankful that this is not the, the um, I don't know, cliffhanger that we're stopping on. That would drive me crazy. I know last time, right, we, we stopped at a cliffhanger wherein a, a wall of fire appears. But we know when a wall of fire appears, you gotta run. There's not a lot that can happen here. But this one, this one... This one would be terrible. And so I'm glad to say that we still have two more chapters to read today. Um, I cannot promise that we won't go out on a cliffhanger still, but I'm glad it's not this one. This one would drive me crazy. Gwen Dog says the synth music is so ominous. I'm glad y'all like it. Yeah, I've been really pleased with it so far. I took a bit more of a risk. I, I try to always take like a little bit more of a risk with, uh, with the, um, I guess, the production side of things. Um... And it has not always paid off for me. Uh, music has not always been uh, a favorite, shall we say, here on Sidecar Stories. I tried it briefly during book um, four, I believe, of Harry Potter. Um, a lot of that was just on the execution side of things, you know, just because, like, you know, I, I had the audio, I had the music too loud. Um, so it didn't go over well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to try something, something... A little bit tongue-in-cheek here. The music that would be played uh, sort of in the television broadcast of the games. Not necessarily the music I would use uh, to, to uh, I don't know, to score the film about this or a TV show about this. So I went a little wonky with it. And I think it's gone well. Hey, Memnight. Memnite says, uh, with an 18-month subscription, uh, Memnite, you and JCA both getting in here with the 18 months. Uh, fantastic. Memnite says, man, this is starting to make me feel old. Just, uh, yeah, you've been, you've been here for a while. Y'all have been here for a long time. Uh, Sander has obviously been here for a real long time. Uh, but everyone, I hope you are enjoying this book so far. Uh, I thank you all so very much for joining me today. Uh, it is, it's a big day. Um, but, uh, you know, we are, we're going to plod on with our, our adventures here. Um, for those of you who are wondering what other sorts of adventures are going on right now, well, I, uh, I have a few more things, probably a couple more weeks, um, like, like two or three more weeks, uh, of plans that I want to sort of make for myself before I start back up with, um, uh, with Vintage Sidecar, but I do certainly intend to do so. Uh, and I think we're going to get into Sherlock Holmes. I think it's time. I think it's high time we got into some Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if we're going to do the entire catalog, but I plan to do like a decent bit of Sherlock Holmes. We're not doing, we're not hitting one story and then moving on. Um, our next, so our next big adventure in Vintage Sidecar is going to be Sherlock Holmes. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Additionally, we also have some other fun things going on. Uh, on Wednesdays, uh, we are about to boot up a new stream, uh, excuse me, a new, uh, a new campaign uh, during our Wednesday streams. We have decided, based on a vote, it is going to be a school for Duskin. So, if y'all are missing that sort of, like, uh, Harry Potter, especially, somewhat Percy Jackson as well, but if you're missing some of that Harry Potter action, um, or, uh, I've, I've never seen it, but based on the commercials, it seemed a lot like uh, Miss Peregrine's home uh, for, like, Unusual Children, I think it's called. Um, if you want to basically hang out with a, you want to hang out at a secret school, in a fantasy world that we have built together, uh, but it is all centered around this this secret school for vampires and ghosts and werewolves uh, and another lichen. Um, go ahead and join us on Wednesdays. We are going to be doing our character building next week. 
uh, you know, provided everything goes well. So uh, y'all can come in and help to build one of the characters because y'all are going to be playing one of the characters. Uh, I'm going to go a little less intense on the actual sort of like fidelity of controls than last time. Some of y'all might have ducked into my previous, like, chat plays Dungeon World streams, and I know those were, like, hold on, what, the bot commands and all this to get the hang of. Instead, now, I'm just going to, because we're playing a, a you know, another Powered by the Apocalypse game, it can kind of work to just say, you know what, instead, y'all are just going to tell me what you want to do in chat, and I will interpret that into sort of move form. We're not going to bother with commands this time, even though I'm so thankful to uh, to Hen and, the, the, uh, uh, and um, Sander, who made that possible last time. Really thankful for it, but this time we're going to, going to go more streamlined so anyone can jump in at any time. And uh, yeah, that is going to be Chat's character. And then I'm going to be playing another character in addition to sort of the world around us. Um, so I'm really excited about that. A school for Duskin. Duskin just being the sort of blanket term for vampires and ghosts and uh, lichen. So yeah, if you like that idea, if you want to see uh, creepy, like... Creepy Hogwarts, haunted school for for little um, little vampire children, little werewolf children, little uh, <laughs> little werebat children, uh, little ghost children. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, and I hope you will join me then, or at the very least, check it out because I'm gonna be posting the videos. Um, Y'all, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I am going to roll on into our next chapter now that we've made kind of our announcements here. Um, I hope that you're ready for chapter two out of today's three, um, because we're rolling right through. Um, let's see. I think I can ration out this water just fine until I'm done with, uh, our second chapter. Chapter 14. Uh, but first we got to do a tiny bit of review. Of course, we have got, uh, chapter 13. Um, and in this chapter for anyone who is showing up late, chapter 13, it's the only one we've read so far today. We wake up with Katniss, um, as she discovers that she has been sort of engulfed in flame. There's this wall of flame bearing down on her um, as, as she has sort of found herself next to this pool. She finally finds water uh, after escaping from the career tributes, and that's when the wall of flames hit. Terrible timing, right? Terribly unlucky. Well, probably not. Um, as we learn from some of her past experience, it seems that these, this wall of flames and uh, the eventual sort of firebomb launcher that seems to be chasing her out of this section these aren't just random these are things that the game makers intentionally put in the arena and use it to control the the control the action of the games they're not quite trying to kill katniss but they're trying to push the tributes closer together otherwise the people in the capital will get bored uh, anyway um she manages to escape, but only barely, and suffers some really serious burns on her hands and an especially bad one on her leg. Uh, and that, of course, is when the career tributes show up. She climbs a tree to try and escape them. They have made camp down uh, at the base of this tree. She's up here just essentially, you know, trying to deal with this burn, but it's terrible. And uh, the career tributes below, one of them has that bow she had her eyes on. Fortunately, they can't use it, but she's 80 feet up in this tree with nowhere to go. And then she spots something. A pair of eyes. Probably a raccoon or a possum. But no, it's not. It's Rue. A district, what was it, 11 tribute? The girl. The girl who reminds her of Prue. I said Prue. I meant Prim. I guess I'm thinking of Bake Off now. Yeah, it reminds her of, of uh, the very old woman from Great British Bake Off. Uh... uh no, uh, 
there's Rue in this tree across from her. And the last thing we get is Rue is pointing to something above Katniss's head. There we go. Folks, let's get back into it, shall we? With chapter 14. Chapter 14 My eyes follow the line of her finger up into the foliage above me. At first I've got no idea what she's pointing to, but then, about fifteen feet up, I make out the vague shape in the dimming light. But of... of what? Some sort of animal? It looks to be about the size of a raccoon, but it hangs from the bottom of a branch, swaying ever so slightly. There's something else... Among the familiar evening sounds of the woods, my ears now register a low hum. Then I know. It's a wasp nest. Fear shoots through me, but I have enough sense to keep still. After all, I don't know what kind of wasp lives there. It could be the ordinary, leave us alone and we'll leave you alone type. But these are the Hunger Games, and ordinary isn't the norm. More likely, they'll be one of the capital's mutations, tracker-jackers. Like the Jabberjays, these killer wasps were spawned in a lab and strategically placed, like landmines, around the districts during the war. Larger than regular wasps, they have a distinctive solid gold body and a sting that raises a lump the size of a plum on contact. Most people can't tolerate more than a few stings. Some die at once. If you live, the hallucinations brought on by the venom have actually driven people to madness. And there's another thing. These wasps will hunt down anyone who disturbs their nest and attempt to kill them. That's where the tracker part of the name comes from. After the war, the capital destroyed all the nests surrounding their city, but the ones near the districts were left untouched. Another reminder of our weakness, I suppose. Just like the Hunger Games. Another reason to keep inside the fence of District 12. When Gail and I come across a tracker-jacker nest, we immediately head in the opposite direction. So, is that what hangs above me? I look back to Rue for help, but she's melted into her tree. <sighs> Given my circumstances, I guess it doesn't matter what type of wasp nest it is. I'm wounded and trapped. Darkness has given me a brief reprieve, but by the time the sun rises, the careers will have formulated a plan to kill me. There's no way they could do otherwise after I've made them look so stupid. That nest may be the sole option I have left. If I can drop it down on them, I may be able to escape, but I'll risk my own life in the process. Of course, I'll never be able to get in close enough to the actual nest to cut it free. I'll have to saw down the whole branch at the trunk and send the whole thing down. The serrated portion of my knife should be able to manage that. But can my hands... Will the vibration from the sawing raise the swarm? And what if the careers figure out what I'm doing and move their camp? That would defeat the whole purpose. 
I realize that the best chance I'll have to do the sawing without drawing notice will be during the anthem. That could begin at any time. I drag myself out of my bag, make sure my knife is secured to my belt, and begin to make my way up the tree. This in itself is a dangerous climb, since the branches are becoming precariously thin even for me, but I persevere. When I reach the limb that supports the nest, the humming becomes more distinctive. It's still oddly subdued if these are tracker jackers. It's the smoke, I think. It's sedated them. This was the best defense that the rebels found to battle the wasps. The seal of the capital shines above me and the anthem blares out. It's now or never, I think, and I begin to saw. Blisters burst on my right hand as I awkwardly drag the knife back and forth. Once I've got a groove, the work requires little effort, but it's almost more than I can handle. I grit my teeth and saw away, occasionally glancing at the sky to register that there are no deaths today. That's all right. The audience will be sated, seeing me injured and treed in the pack below me. But the anthem's running out, and I'm only three-quarters of the way through the wood when the music stops. The sky goes dark, and I'm forced to end my efforts. Now what? I could probably finish off the job by sense of feel, but that may not be the smartest plan. If the wasps are too groggy, if the nest catches on its way down, if I try to escape, this could all be a deadly waste of time. Better, I think, to sneak up here at dawn and send the nest into my enemies. In the faint light of the career's torches, I inch back down to my fork and find the best surprise I've ever had. Sitting in my sleeping bag is a small plastic pot attached to a silver parachute. My first gift from a sponsor. Hey, Mitch must have had it sent in during the anthem. The pot easily fits in the palm of my hand. What can it be? Not food, surely. I unscrew the lid and know by the scent that it's medicine. Cautiously, I probe the surface of the ointment. The throbbing in my fingertip vanishes. Oh, hey, Mitch, I whisper. Thank you. He has not abandoned me. Not left me to fight entirely for myself. The cost of this medicine must be astronomical. Probably not one, but many sponsors have contributed to buy this one tiny pot. To me, it's priceless. I dip two fingers into the jar and gently spread the balm over my calf. The effect is almost magical, erasing the pain on contact, leaving a pleasant cooling sensation behind. This is no herbal concoction that my mother grinds up out of woodland plants. It's high-tech medicine brewed up in the capital's labs. When my calf is treated, I rub a thin layer onto my hands. After wrapping the pot in the parachute, I nestle it safely away in my pack. Now that the pain is eased, it's all I can do to reposition myself in my bag before I plunge into sleep. A bird perched just a few feet away from me alerts me that a new day is dawning. In the gray morning light, I examine my hands. The medicine has transformed all the angry red patches to soft baby skin pink. My leg still feels inflamed, but that burn was far deeper. I apply another coat of medicine and quietly pack up my gear. Whatever happens, I'm going to have to move and move fast. I also make myself eat a cracker and a strip of beef and drink a few cups of water. Almost nothing stayed in my stomach yesterday. 
and I'm already starting to feel the effects of hunger. Below me, I can see the career pack and Peta asleep on the ground. By her position, leaned up against the trunk of the tree, I'd guess Glimmer was supposed to be on guard. But fatigue overcame her. My eyes squint as they try to penetrate the tree next to me. But I can't make out Rue. Since she tipped me off, it seems only fair to warn her. Besides, if I'm going to die today, it's Rue I want to win. Even if it means a little extra food for my family. The idea of Peta being crowned victor is unbearable. I call Rue's name in a hushed whisper and the eyes appear, wide and alert at once. She points up to the nest again. I hold up my knife and make a sawing motion. She nods and disappears. There's a rustling in a nearby tree. Then the same noise again, a bit further off. I realize she's leaping from tree to tree. It's all I can do not to laugh out loud. Is this what she showed the game makers? I imagine her flying around the training equipment, never touching the floor. She should have gotten at least a ten. Rosy streaks are breaking through the east. I can't afford to wait any longer. Compared to the agony of last night's climb, this one is a cinch. At the tree limb that holds the nest, I position the knife in the groove that I'm about to saw, with the teeth across the wood, when I see something moving. There, on the nest, the bright gold gleam of a tracker jacker lazily making its way across the papery gray surface. No question. It's acting a little subdued, but the wasp is up and moving, and that means the others will soon be out as well. Sweat breaks out on the palms of my hands, beating up through the ointment, and I do my best to pat them dry on my shirt. If I don't get through this branch in a matter of seconds, the entire swarm could emerge and attack me. There's no sense in putting it off. I take a deep breath, grip the knife handle, and bear down as hard as I can. Back, forth, back, forth. The tracker jackers begin to buzz, and I hear them coming out. Back, forth, back, forth. A stabbing pain shoots through my knee, and I know one has found me and the others will be honing in. Back, forth, back, forth. Just as the knife cuts through, I shove the edge of the branch as far away from me as I can. It crashes down through the lower branches, snagging temporarily on a few, but then twisting free until it smashes with a thud on the ground. The nest bursts open like an egg, and the furious swarm of tracker jackers takes to the air. I feel a second sting on my neck, a third on my cheek, and their venom almost immediately makes me woozy. I cling to the tree with one arm while I rip the barbed stingers out of my flesh. Fortunately, only these three tracker jackers have identified me before the nest went down. The rest of the insects have targeted their enemies on the ground. It's mayhem. The careers have woken up to a full-scale tracker jacker attack. Peta and a few others have the sense to drop everything and bolt. I can hear cries of, To the lake! Get to the lake! And I know they must be trying to evade the wasps by taking to the water. It must be close if they think they can outdistance the furious insects. Glimmer and another girl, the one from District 4, are not so lucky. They receive multiple stings before they're even out of my view. Glimmer appears to go completely mad, shrieking and trying to bat the wasps off with her bow, which is pointless. She calls to the others for help, but of course, no one returns. The girl from District 4 staggers out of sight, although I wouldn't bet on her making it to the lake. I watch Glimmer fall, twitch hysterically on the ground for a few minutes, and then go still. The nest is nothing but an empty shell. 
The wasps have vanished in pursuit of the others. I don't think they'll return, but I don't want to risk it. I scamper down the tree and hit the ground running in the opposite direction of the lake. The poison from the stingers makes me wobbly, but I find my way back to my own little pool and submerge myself in the water, just in case any wasps are still on my trail. After about five minutes, I drag myself onto the rocks. People have not exaggerated the effects of the tracker jacker stings. Actually, the one on my knee is closer to an orange in size than a plum. A foul-smelling green liquid oozes from the places where I pulled out the stingers. The swelling, the pain, the ooze, watching glimmer twitching on the ground. It's a lot to handle before the sun has even cleared the horizon. I don't want to think about what Glimmer must look like now, her body disfigured, her swollen fingers stiffening around the bow. The bow. Somewhere in my befuddled mind, one thought connects to another, and I'm on my feet, teetering through the trees back to Glimmer. The bow. The arrows. I must get them. I haven't heard the cannons fire yet, so perhaps Glimmer is in some sort of coma, her heart still struggling against the wasp venom. But once it stops, and the cannon signals her death, a hovercraft will move in and retrieve her body, taking the only bow and sheath of arrows I've seen out of the games for good. And I refuse to let them slip through my fingers again. I reach Glimmer just as the cannon fires. The tracker jackers have vanished. This girl, so breathtakingly beautiful in her golden dress the night of the interviews, is unrecognizable her features eradicated, her limbs three times their normal size. The stinger lumps have begun to explode, spewing putrid green liquid around her. I have to break several of what used to be her fingers with a stone to free the bow. The sheath of arrows is pinned under her back. I try to roll over her body by pulling on one arm, but the flesh disintegrates in my hands and I begin to fall back to the ground. Is this real? Or have the hallucinations begun? I squeeze my eyes tight and try to breathe through my mouth, ordering myself not to become sick. Breakfast must stay down. It might be days before I can hunt again. A second cannon fires, and I'm guessing this girl from District 4 has just died. I can hear the birds fall silent, and then one gives the warning call, which means a hovercraft is about to appear. Confused, I think it's for Glimmer, although this doesn't quite make sense because I'm still in the picture, still fighting for the arrows. I lurch back onto my knees, and the trees around me begin to spin in circles. In the middle of the sky, I spot the hovercraft. I throw myself over Glimmer's body as if to protect it, and then I see the girl from District 4 being lifted into the air and vanishing. Do this, I command myself. Clenching my jaw, I dig my hands under Glimmer's body and get a hold of what must be her rib cage and force her onto her stomach. I can't help it. I'm hyperventilating now. The whole thing is so nightmarish and I'm losing my grasp on what's real. I tug the silver sheath of arrows, but it's caught on something. Or shoulder blade, something, and I finally yank it free. I've just encircled the sheath with my arms when I hear the footsteps. Several pairs coming back through the underbrush. And I realize the careers must have come back. They've come back to kill me or get their weapons, or both. But it's too late to run. I pull a slimy arrow from the sheath and try to position it on the bowstring, but instead of one string, I see three, and the stench from the stings is so repulsive I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm helpless as the first hunter crashes through the trees. Spear lifted. Poised to throw. 
The shock on Peta's face make no sense to me. I wait for the blow. Instead, his arm drops to his side. What are you still doing here? He hisses at me. I stare uncomprehendingly as a trickle of water drips off of a sting under his ear. His whole body starts sparkling as if he's been dipped in dew. Are you mad? He's prodding me with the shaft of the spear now. Get up! Get up! I rise, but he's still pushing at me. What? What's going on? He shoves me away from him hard. Run! He screams. Run! Behind him, Cato slashes his way through the brush. He's sparkling wet too and badly stung under one eye. I catch the gleam of sunlight on his sword and do as Peter says. Holding tightly to my bow and arrows, banging into trees that appear out of nowhere, tripping and falling as I try to keep my balance. Back past my pool and into unfamiliar woods. The world begins to bend in alarming ways. A butterfly balloons to the size of a house and then shatters into a million stars. Trees transform to blood and splash down over my boots. Ants begin to crawl out of the blisters on my hands and I can't shake them free. They're climbing up my arms, my neck, someone's screaming. A long, high-pitched scream that never breaks for breath. I have a vague idea it might be me. I trip and fall into a small pit lined with tiny orange bubbles that hum like the tracker jacker nest. Tucking my knees up to my chin, I wait for death. Sick and disoriented, I'm only able to form one thought. Peter Malark just saved my life. Then the ants bore into my eyes and I black out. Folks, that's chapter two out of the three that we intend to read today. As I've mentioned to you all before, this book is just mm, so neatly arranged for reading. Um, Three chapters per stream, three chapters per episode, um, three episodes per part, and three parts in the book. I can only hope that the later books are organized as well as this one. I'm going to leave you all with a chatter break question because I'm going to take a quick five-minute break, rest my voice up a little bit refill my water and then i'm coming back here and we're gonna read our final chapter for the evening and gems i think has hit on what we're going to be discussing as we have so often but it's one of the big parts of this you know um gem says glad Peta isn't completely bad well I, i tell you what we've had this question so often what is Peta's deal We've had this question so often. I'm going to give you two Chatterbreak questions, and y'all can sort of decide between the two. Um, uh, this all, all this discussion of, like, you know, the tracker jackers and stuff, uh, talk about uh, jabber jays and such, these are things that it really seems like Katniss has learned, not here in the games, not in preparation for the games, but back at home. The Chatterbreak questions are going to be as follows. Of course, we're going to ask the question again, what is going on in Peta's head? And we're going to revisit another question from before, too. What is it, what what sort of things, what sort of skills do we think, going going beyond simply like, uh, you know, just like paying attention, right? 
what what sort of things do we think are going to serve Katniss really well here? Uh, I want to think about the skills that she has picked up from living back at home from her life there. So those are our two chatterbait questions, and I will see you all in five minutes. Goodbye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It is good to have you all here. Indeed it is. Oh. <laughs> Uh, if you want more voices like that, of course, uh, you'll have to come hang out with some of the new teachers that we hang out with um, in our School for Duskin campaign. That's right, on Wednesdays. Uh, come help us do character building this coming Wednesday because our next campaign is going to be uh, a sort of a very uh, <laughs> very ma secret magical school. Uh, but this one is going to be a little spooky because this is a magical school for young ghosts werewolves, other lichen, and vampires. So if you want to help decide what chat's character is going to be, come hang out on Wednesday. Uh, or go ahead and let me know over in Discord. Um, over in uh, one of the tabletop RPG channels, you can find the uh, Realms of Recidus channel that will, of course, uh, house most of that. But if you've got an idea for that over there, do let me know, because chat is going to be able to play a character, and I'm super excited about it. Um, additionally, like I said, I don't have a strict timeline, except for, like, I need two or three more weeks before I jump into it, but uh, I do intend to bring back Vintage Sidecar, of course, uh, and we're going to come back with Sherlock Holmes. I'm super excited about it. I hope y'all are as well. Uh, now, a bit about our book thus far. Um... Let me see. Let me see what uh, uh, what what discussion has been happening over in chat here. Remember, our discussion was what in Katniss's life has sort of prepared her for what she's doing now, and what is going on in Katniss. Er, excuse me, in uh, in Peta's head right now. Uh, what's what's going on with Peta? These are two questions that we've had before, but it's important to ask some of these questions more than once because that's how we can track the progress over time. And in I would say lots of good books, the answer changes. Right? Uh, especially to very broad questions like this, of like, what part of this character's history has prepared them for this moment? Or, uh, you know, what is what is happening in this character's mind right now? Um, in lots of good literature, these questions, their answers change frequently. Um, now, let me see. What, what do we like here? Uh, Orly Rose says Katniss is fiercely independent. Um, uh, from the beginning, Peta. Oh, let me see. These are these are a couple different people talking. They're just na their names are all pink. Um, Orly Rose says, "I don't know if my keep your friends close and your enemies closer comment still applies. Uh, I think Peta wants to keep control and can watch the most dangerous threats to her from the inside." Okay, that's interesting. So he's sort of acting as like a uh, a mole, as it were, a double agent. Cool. Um, Orly Rose also says, uh, Katniss being from a very impoverished and wild district, with lots of personal tragedy she's had to overcome, make her a resourceful and resilient fighter, but also very practically able to keep herself alive. She knows how to hunt, forage, climb trees, has an understanding of first aid, and is very brave. I'm going to agree with all of that there. Orly Rose, I think you are certainly on the right track. You know, it's it takes bravery, but also takes some sort of like local knowledge is very handy. Um, and, uh, you know, just a, a will not just to survive, but also to act when the time comes. Um, Big Mama says, from the beginning, PETA has constantly done things uh, to cover for slash benefit Katniss. I think we only suspect him because she does. 
And I think you're right. And that's one of the great things about this perspective is that, you know, in, in other ones where we sort of, you know, imagine us bouncing back and forth between these characters. Imagine we spend a chapter with Katniss, then we spend a chapter with Peeta. And if we had followed Peeta this whole time and he's been, you know, thinking in his own mind about how like, oh yeah, I just, if I could just keep Katniss safe a little bit longer, then every time we bounced back to Katniss, we would always have this thing in the back of our minds like, surely you see this, right? Surely you can see that he's like trying to help you out. But, but no, it's perfectly reasonable for Katniss to have thought right up until this moment, right up until this moment, it's perfectly reasonable for her to have suspected Peta had just sort of gone off, gone off the rails, teamed up with the clo- the, the strongest, closest thing at hand uh, that would take him and is now fully sort of rogue, right? Because I mean, the, the, the games will make you do stuff. And one of those things is to join up with strong people. But another thing is to make it, uh, to make you suspicious of others. And I think that is one of the big things about this story, isn't it? What are these games designed to do? Even among the the people who have, like, they've literally trained together. Even among them. It's designed to sow dissent, conflict, to prevent people from these districts from trusting each other, from organizing, from working together. Well, it seems to work. But only if they let it. And uh, it seems like PETA has really made some effort here. We'll see how Katniss responds. And with that, folks, I think it's time to read our third chapter, don't you? Uh, Chapters 13 and 14. These chapters were centered around um, basically Katniss fleeing the fire. In the first chapter, she has... She sustains some pretty bad burns here um, as she as she flees it and comes across the uh, the careers one more time. Uh, in the second chapter of today, uh, she is basically stuck up in a tree with career uh, careers stuck down below her with the bow, even though they can't really use it on her because they're they're not good at it. Um, a tracker jacker nest. These are like some really ferocious wasps up above her, and then in a tree next to her, another tribute. Rue. Interesting. Rue calls Katniss's attention to this wasp nest, and uh, after formulating the plan here, uh, Katniss decides to cut the wasp nest down onto the camp full of career uh, uh, tributes. She does so after warning Rue, and Rue sort of like jumps tree to tree away. It seems like that's kind of a big thing for her. Um, And then... Well, uh, Katniss does get stung a couple of times, but not nearly as bad as the career tributes. And she manages to retrieve the bow off of the dead body of uh, one of these career tributes killed by these tracker jackers. But she stumbles away, sort of hallucinating from the tracker jacker venom. And that is where we're going to catch up with Katniss. Um, unless Unless her eyes deceive her, she is in a little cavern full of orange bubbles that hum like tracker jacker nests. Uh-oh.
Chapter 15 I enter a nightmare from which I wake repeatedly, only to find a greater terror awaiting me. All the things I dread most. All the things I dread for others manifest in such vivid detail, I can't help but believe they're real. Each time I wake, I think, at last, this is over. But it isn't. It's only the beginning of a new chapter of torture. How many ways do I watch Prim die? Relive my father's last moments. Feel my own body ripped apart. This is the nature of the Tracker Jacker Venom, so carefully created to target the place where fear lives in your brain. When I finally do come to my senses, I lie still, waiting for the next onslaught of imagery. But eventually, I accept that the poison must have finally worked its way out of my system, leaving my body racked and feeble. I'm still lying on my side, locked in the fetal position. I lift my hand to my eyes to find them sound, untouched by ants that never existed. Simply stretching out my limbs requires an enormous effort. So many parts of me hurt. It doesn't seem worthwhile taking inventory of them. Very, very slowly, I manage to sit up. I'm in a shallow hole, not filled with the humming orange bubbles of my hallucination, but with old, dead leaves. My clothing is damp, but I don't know whether it's pond water, dew, rain, or sweat. For a long time, all I can do is take tiny sips from my bottle and watch a beetle crawl up the side of a honeysuckle bush. How long have I been out? It was morning when I lost reason. Now it's afternoon. But the stiffness in my joint suggests more than a day has passed. Even two, possibly. If so, I'll have no way of knowing which tribute survived that tracker-jacker attack. Not Glimmer or the girl from District 4. But there was the boy from District 1. Both tributes from District 2. And PETA. Did they die from their stings? Certainly, if they lived, their last days must have been horrid as my own. What about Rue? She's so small, it wouldn't take much venom to do her in. But then again, the Tracker Jackers would have had to catch her, and she had a good head start. A foul, rotten taste pervades my mouth, and the water has little effect on it. I drag myself over the honeysuckle bush and pluck a flower. I gently pull the stamen through the blossom and set the drop of nectar on my tongue. The sweetness spreads through my mouth, down my throat, warming my veins with memories of summer, and my home woods, and Gale's presence beside me. For some reason, our discussion from that last morning comes back to me. We could do it, you know. What? Leave the district? Run off? Live in the woods? You and I... We can make it. And suddenly I'm not thinking of Gale, but of Peter. And Peter, he saved my life, I think. Because by the time we met up, I couldn't tell what was real and what was tracker-jacker venom causing me to imagine. But if he did, and my instincts tell me he did, what for? Is he simply working the lover-boy angle he initiated at the interviews? Or was he actually trying to protect me? And if he was, what was he doing with those careers in the first place? None of it makes sense. I wonder what Gail makes of the whole incident for a moment, and I push the whole thing out of my mind. Because for some reason, Gail and 
Peter do not coexist well together in my thoughts. So I focus on the one really good thing that's happened since I landed in the arena. I have a bow and arrows. A full dozen arrows if you count the one I retrieved in the tree. They bear no trace of the noxious green slime that came from Glimmer's body, which leads me to believe that might not have been wholly real, but they have a fair amount of dried blood on them. I can clean them later, but I do take a minute to shoot a few into a nearby tree. They're more like the weapons in the training center than my one back at home, but who cares? That I can work with. The weapons give me an entirely new perspective on the games. I know I have tough opponents left to face, but I'm no longer merely prey that runs and hides or takes desperate measures. If Cato broke through the trees right now, I wouldn't flee. I'd shoot. I find I'm actually anticipating the moment with pleasure. But first I have to get some strength back in my body. I'm very dehydrated again, and my water supply is dangerously low. The little padding I was able to put on by gorging myself during prep time in the capital is gone, plus several more pounds as well. My hip bones and ribs are more prominent than I remember them being since those awful months after my father's death. And then there are my wounds to contend with. Burns, cuts, bruises from smashing into the trees, and three tracker-jackers things— which are sore and swollen as ever. I treat my burns with the ointment and try dabbing a bit on the stings as well, but it has no effect on them. My mother knew a treatment for them, some kind of leaf that could draw out the poison, but she seldom had cause to use it, and I don't ever remember its name, let alone its appearance. Water first, I think. You can hunt along the way now. It's easy to see the direction I came by the path of destruction my crazed body made through the foliage. So I walk off in the other direction, hoping my enemies still lie locked in the surreal world of tracker-jacker venom. I can't move too quickly. My joints reject any abrupt motions. But I establish the slow hunter's tread I use when tracking game. Within a few minutes, I spot a rabbit and make my first kill with a bow and arrow. It's not my usual clean shot through the eye, but I'll take it. After about an hour, I find a stream, shallow but wide, and more than sufficient for my needs. The sun is hot and severe, so while I wait for my water to purify, I strip down to my underclothes and wade into the mild current. I'm filthy from head to toe. I try splashing myself, but eventually just lay down in the water for a few minutes, letting it wash the soot and blood and skin that started to peel off my burns. After rinsing out my clothes and hanging them on bushes to dry, I sit on the bank in the sun for a bit, untangling my hair with my fingers. My appetite returns and I ate a cracker and a strip of beef. With a handful of mosh, I polish the blood from my silver weapons. Refreshed, I treat my burns again, braid back my hair and dress in the damp clothes, knowing the sun will dry them soon enough. Following the stream against its current seems the smartest course of action. I'm traveling uphill now, which I prefer, with a source of fresh water not only for myself, but possible game. I easily take out a strange bird that must be some form of wild turkey. Anyway, it looks plenty edible to me. By late afternoon, I decide to build a small fire to cook the meat, betting that the dusk will help conceal the smoke, and I can quench a fire by nightfall. I clean the game, taking extra care with the bird, but there's nothing alarming about it. When the feathers are plucked, it's no bigger than a chicken but it's plump and firm. 
I've just placed the first lot over the coals when I hear the twig snap. In one motion, I turn to the sound, bringing the bow and arrow to my shoulder. There's no one there. No one I can see, anyway. Then I spot the tip of a child's boot, just peeking out from behind the trunk of a tree. My shoulders relax, and I grin. She can move through the woods like a shadow. You have to give her that. How else could she have followed me? The words come out of my mouth before I can stop them. You know, they're not the only ones who can form alliances, I say. For a moment, no response. Then one of Rue's eyes edges around the trunk. You want me for an ally? Why not? You saved me with those tracker jackers. You're smart enough to still be alive, and I can't seem to shake you anyway, I say. She blinks at me, trying to decide. Are you hungry? I can see her swallow hard, her eyes flickering to the meat. Come on, then. I've had two kills today. Rue tentatively steps out into the open. I can fix your stings. Can you? I ask. How? She digs into the pack she carries and pulls out a handful of leaves. I'm almost certain they're the ones that my mother uses. Where did you find those? Just, just around. We all carry them when we work in the orchards. They left a lot of nests there, says Rue. There's a lot here, too. That's right. Your District 11. Agriculture, I say. Orchards, huh? That must be how you can fly around the trees like you got wings. Rue smiles. I've landed on one of the few things she'll admit with pride. Well, come on up then. Fix me up. I plunk down by the fire and roll up my pant leg to reveal the sting on my knee. To my surprise, Rue places a handful of leaves in her mouth and begins to chew on them. My mother would use other methods, but it's not like we've got a lot of options. After a minute or two, Rue presses the gloppy green wad of chewed leaves and spit onto my knee. <sighs> the sound comes out of my mouth before I can stop it. It's as if the leaves are actually leeching the pain right out of the sting. Rue gives a giggle. Lucky you had this chance to pull out the stingers, or you'd have a lot worse. Oh, to my neck and my cheek, I almost beg. Rue stuffs another handful of leaves into her mouth, and soon I'm laughing because the relief is so sweet. I notice a long burn on Rue's forearm. I've got something for that. I set aside my weapons and anoint her arm with the burn medicine. You have good sponsors, she says longingly. Have you gotten anything yet? I ask. She shakes her head. You will, though. Watch. The closer we get to the end, the more people are going to realize how clever you are. I turn the meat over. You weren't joking? About wanting me for an ally? She asks. No, I meant it. I can almost hear Hamish groaning as I team up with this wispy child. But I want her. Because she's a survivor. And I trust her. And why not admit it? She reminds me of Prim. Okay, she says, and holds out her hand. We shake. 
It's a deal. Of course, this kind of deal can only be temporary, but neither of us mentions that. Rue contributes a big handful of some sort of starchy root to the meal. Roasted over the fire, they have the sharp, sweet taste of a parsnip. She recognizes the bird, too. Some kind of wild thing they call a grusling in her district. She says sometimes a flock will wander into the orchard and they get a decent lunch that day. For a while, all conversation stops as we fill our stomachs. The grusling has delicious meat that's so fatty, the grease drips down your face when you bite into it. Oh, says Rue with a sigh. I've never had a whole leg to myself before. I bet she hasn't. I bet meat hardly ever comes her way. Take the other, I say. Really? She asks. Take whatever you want. Now that I got a bow and arrows, I can get more. But also I got snares. I can show you how to set them, I say. Rue still looks uncertainly at the leg. Oh, take it, I say, putting the drumstick in her hands. It'll only keep a few days anyway. I've got the whole bird plus the rabbit. Once she's got hold of it, her appetite wins out and she takes a huge mouthful. I'd have thought in District 11 you'd get a bit more to eat than us. You know, since you grow the food, I say. Rue's eyes widen. Oh, no, we're not allowed to eat the crops. They arrest you or something, I ask. They whip you and make everyone else watch, says Rue. The mayor's very strict about it. I can tell by her expression it's not an uncommon occurrence. Public whipping is a rare thing in District 12, although occasionally one occurs. Technically, Gale and I could be whipped on a daily basis for poaching in the woods. Well, technically, we could get a whole lot worse, except all the officials buy our meat. Besides, our mayor, Madge's father, doesn't seem to have much taste for such events. Maybe being the least prestigious, poorest, and most ridiculed district in the country has its advantages, such as being largely ignored by the capital as long as we produce our coal quotas. Do you get all the coal you want? Rue asks. No, I answer. Just what we buy and whatever we track home in our boots. They feed us a bit, a bit extra during the harvest, so people can keep going longer, says Rue. Don't you have to be in school, I ask. Not during the harvest. Everybody works then, says Rue. It's interesting hearing about her life. We have so little communication with anyone outside our district. In fact, I wonder if the game makers are blocking out our conversation, because even though the information seems harmless, they don't want people in different districts to know about one another. At Rue's suggestion, we lay out all of our food and plan ahead. She's seen most of mine, but I add the last couple of crackers and beef strips to the pile. She's gathered quite a collection of roots, nuts, greens, and even some berries. I roll an unfamiliar berry in my fingers. Are you sure that this one's safe? Oh, yeah, we got them back home. I've been eating them for days, she says, popping a handful in her mouth. I tentatively bite into one, and it's as good as our blackberries. Taking Rue on as an ally seems a better choice all the time. We divide up our food supplies, so in case we're separated, we'll both be set for a few days. Apart from the food, Rue has a small water skin, a homemade slingshot, and an extra pair of socks. She also has a sharp rock she uses as a knife. I know it's not much, she says, as if embarrassed. 
but I had to get away from the cornucopia fast. And you did just right, I say. When I spread out my gear, she gasps a little when she sees the sunglasses. How did you get those? She asks. In my pack, they've been useless so far. They don't block the sun out and they make it harder for me to see, I say with a shrug. These aren't for the sun, they're for darkness, exclaims Rue. Sometimes when we harvest through the night, they'll pass out a few pairs of these to us highest in the trees, where the torchlight doesn't reach. One time, this boy Martin, he tried to keep his pair, hid it in his pants. They killed him on the spot. They killed a boy for taking these, I say. Yeah, everybody knew he was no danger. Martin just wasn't right in the head. I mean, he still acted like a three-year-old. He just wanted the glasses to play with, says Rue. Hearing this makes me feel like District 12 is some sort of safe haven. Of course, people keel over from starvation all the time, but I can't imagine the peacekeepers murdering a simple-minded child. There's a little girl, one of Greasy Say's grandkids, who wanders around the hob. She's not quite right, but she's treated as a sort of pet. People toss her scraps and things. So what do they do? I ask Rue, taking the glasses. They let you see in complete darkness, says Rue. Try them on tonight when the sun goes down. I give Rue some matches, and she makes sure I've got plenty of leaves in case my stings flare up again. We extinguish our fire and head upstream until it's almost nightfall. Where do you sleep? I ask her. In the trees? She nods. In just your jacket? Rue holds up her extra pair of socks. I have these in my hands. I think of how cold the nights have been. You can share my sleeping bag if you want. We're both easily fit. Her face lights up. I can tell this is more than she dared hope for. We pick a fork high in the tree and settle in for the night, just as the anthem begins to play. There were no deaths today. Rue, I only just woke up today. How many nights did I miss? The anthem should block out our words, but still I whisper. I even take the precaution of covering my lips with my hand. I don't want the audience to know what I'm planning to tell her about Peta. Taking a cue from me, she does the same. Two, she says. Girls from District 1 and 4, I did. There's ten of us left. Something strange happened. At least, I think it did. It might have been the tracker jacker venom making me imagine things. Do you know the boy from my district, Peter? I think he saved my life. But he was with the careers. He's not with them now, she says. I spot in their base camp by the lake. They made it back before they collapsed from the stingers, but he's not there. Maybe he did save you and had to run. I don't answer. If, in fact, Peter did save me... I'm in his debt again. And this can't be paid back. If he did, it was all probably just part of his act. You know, make people think he's in love with me. Oh, says Rue thoughtfully. I didn't think that was an act. Of course it is, I say. He's worked it out with our mentor. 
The anthem ends and the sky goes dark. Let's try out these glasses. I pull out the glasses and slip them on. Rue wasn't kidding. I can see everything from the leaves on the trees to a skunk strolling through the bushes a good 50 feet away. I could kill it from here if I had a mind to. I could kill anyone. I wonder else who's got a pair of these. The Koreas have two pairs, but they got everything down by the lake, Rue says. And they're so strong. We're strong too, I say. Just in a different way. You are? You can shoot, she says. What can I do? You can feed yourself. Can they? I ask. They don't need to. They got all those supplies, Rue says. I will say that they didn't. Say the supplies were gone. How long would they last? I mean, it's the Hunger Games, right? But Katniss, they're not hungry, says Rue. No, nope, they're not. That's the problem. And for the first time, I have a plan. A plan that isn't motivated by the need for flight and evasion. An offensive plan. I think we're going to have to fix that, Rue. Alright folks, welcome back y'all, welcome back into it, we had a week off and now we're back into it. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for joining me tonight, that is the last of our three chapters. Before we sort of move on to other things, I want to give a reminder. Um, and this is going to be a reminder that involves issues of the day, this day specifically, um, it's going to be more general, but uh, I do have one or two things to say. Uh, things that have uh, come up a lot in our past chapters, uh, uh, in past books, in past readings, um, and a really constant theme here on Sidecar Stories. Um, and I think the little moments here of Rue and Katniss uh, exhibit it just as so, so, so many moments do. Um in, in these books especially, but in so many of our books past. The little fight. The little fight uh, that gets forgotten so often. I think so many people look around at the way the world is and they think to themselves, if I can't be fighting the big fight, what does it matter? Well, if we want to use our recent reading as a bit of an example... Uh, this moment where she and Rue are sort of talking about the the um, talking about their districts, talking about the things that connect them, um, we see that Katniss has this suspicion that probably they're blocking this out so people can't hear it. But that moment of connection—that's the little fight. That's part of the little fight. I've talked about this so so much with with Harry Potter. How often the the true success was determined by lots of people fighting the little fight, not one person fighting the big fight. I saw something else recently, and it's something I like a lot because it's literary. Um, 
And so it seems to fit in with what we do here. You don't need to be the protagonist. As a matter of fact, don't be the protagonist. Don't be a protagonist. Be in the ensemble. Be in the supporting cast. Because that's where so much more happens than we realize. Um, with the with the world getting more and more sort of uh, connected, with the world, uh, with, with us comparing ourselves more and more, not to the people in our town, in our state, in our country, but against everyone in the entire world, it can feel so often like our existence, our contribution is too small to matter. But that is the easiest way cultivating that attitude, cultivating that, that sense that the little fight doesn't matter. It's the easiest way to keep us from winning. Um, and so never forget it. Never forget the power of the little fight. The big fight, frankly, is something that happens uh, because it's in front of cameras. Um, the big fight is something that happens um, infrequently and it requires so much luck to be a part of. The little fight is the fight that happens every day a little bit. It's, it is the, the words you say. It is the, 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 the support that you visibly show. Um, and I think there's enough going on in the world right now that it's, it's worth reminding everyone this is, not, this is not a time to be a protagonist, right? Let's not be protagonists here. Let's all join the ensemble. Let's all be part of the supporting cast and all of us fight the little fight. All right, with things going on in in Texas, with things going on overseas, I want to say to you all, fight the little fight. Fight the little fight, and I love you. Um, and don't forget how much it matters. It, it's the important fight. The little fight is the important fight. Even though it doesn't feel like it, it especially doesn't look like it. And I think because we spent, uh, you know, the past few decades, you know, almost a century of, of sort of expanding out into this different different scale, right? Um, over the past century or so, as everything has gotten gotten so much bigger, as our scope of, of influence and awareness has gotten so much bigger, it makes the little fight feel like it's the less important fight. But it is the important fight. Fight the little fight. Do it all the time. And remember that I see you. All right? I see you. I remember how important it is. And there are lots of others who do as well. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter. Every time, uh, every, every time you fight the little fight and you get yourself a little victory, um, that resounds where you are. And that's the part that's forgotten. Yeah, grassroots movements, uh, I mean, that, that term has come up and, and sort of like, it, it feels a little passe, but grassroots, it means the, the small fight. That is what it is. It is the small fight, it's grassroots. Uh, uh, organizing locally. Basically, what I'm saying is every time you look at, you know, things internationally and wonder about uh, peace, make sure that you are uh, enforcing peace where you are. Uh, every time you look at, uh, you know, national or international hunger, make sure that you are contributing in your small way, not being paralyzed into indecision by uh, the idea that you can't, you can't fight the big fight, that you can't, you know, be the, the billionaire um, uh, who could, you know, sweep in and save it in a moment. Fight the small fight. Because you and everyone else doing the same thing, that does the whole job right there. The small fight is the important fight. So get in there. Everyone, I'm really thankful for y'all joining me today. Um, the, uh, the, the day that we've had today, 
not a ton of fun. Uh, but uh, I do appreciate you all coming to join me. I hope that this has been a place of peace for you, um, and I hope that uh, I hope that you have enjoyed um, these chapters that we've read today. I know they are not necessarily like less intense. Uh, you know, it's not like we're reading about uh, you know tea time in the Weasley Cottage. <sighs> stuff going on here too but um i do hope that you have enjoyed this one it felt short today can anyone like can anyone back that up it felt like a short stream to me um you know we we blasted through three three chapters here let me see i think it's just because there wasn't a lot of dialogue um basically big blocks of text um don't get as many pauses so whether that's like somebody monologuing a lot or just like big chunks of text that aren't broken up by dialogue um that tends to be like there's there's not a lot of like quiet time in there uh and so that tends to like really make things feel kind of quick let's see so chapters um 13 14 15 i guess this was slightly shorter than last week but only like a thousand words shorter and a thousand words that's like that's like a quick 10 minutes ish ish so, um, but it felt a little short. Uh, Y'all, I am really glad you joined me tonight. Uh, let me see what things are like uh, over on the Bean Angle. But first, everyone, thank you so much for being here with me. I love you all dearly. And uh, don't forget, fight the small fight.